Good morning. My name is Chris Hodge. If I haven't met you yet, I am one of the pastors here, and it is a joy to bring God's Word to you. Uh, this morning, I want us to begin by thinking about how quickly we appreciate the nature of a promise or a commitment. Uh, when children are very small, they pick up on this reality. When my daughter was very, very little, uh, my wife made a practice of telling her exactly what they were going to do during the day. And so they would start the day and she would say to her, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go first to the grocery store and then we're going to go and run an errand for dad and then we are going to go to the library, which was a favorite place of my daughter. And let's just say, if they ran the errand for dad first, it created great consternation. From the back seat and the car seat, Anna Grace would start saying, but you said we were going to the grocery store first. You know, and this would go on until they got to the grocery store. In other words, if you said we were doing it in a certain order, then that's what we should do. I was reminded of this recently. Uh, I was able to have dinner with a young man and his daughter. And obviously, this three-year-old had been told before dinner that they were going to dinner with Pastor Chris and said, when are we going to Ava's house? 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 Are we done yet? Can we go to Ava's house? And I loved it. I felt so appreciated as a human being. You know, what this little three-year-old was saying is, okay, we've checked off, have dinner with the, the big, you know, old ball guy, let's go to my friend's house, right? Now, as we get older, you know, our aren't always just good for their word, and so we begin hiring lawyers and making contracts because we want our commitments to count for something. I want us to keep that in mind as we look at this text, because at the beginning of our text here in Galatians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says, look, I want to talk in a, a human way. I want to basically use an example from everyday life. That's the way we can understand the beginning of verse 15, to give a human example, uh, brothers. It literally means to speak as a man speaks. And what he's saying is that human beings understand that when someone makes a legal document, here he's talking specifically about a will, that it can't just be changed willy-nilly. In other words, when you make this legal agreement, a, someone else can't just come along and say, well, I don't like that, I guess we'll change it. He says, no, you take it seriously. You, you count it as a promise that must be kept. And he says, in a similar way, we need to understand the promise that God made to Abraham. You see, here Paul is drilling in on the nature of that promise that God made to Abraham so that the Galatians and people like us could be assured that that promise was rock solid, never changing, always in effect, and could lead us to a joyful, free relationship with God. And I don't know about you, but I, I, I want me some of that. I want to have that assurance, that confidence, that joy, that freedom. And so I want to listen very carefully to what Paul is saying. We're go going to look at it under three headings. Uh, first of all, we're going to look at what Paul means by a singular seed. Secondly, we're going to look at the primacy of promise. And lastly, we are going to look at inheritance acquisition. So first of all, we're going to look at the singular seed. Now, it may seem like Paul is 
sort of losing his way in his argument when he makes a comment in verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, literally, uh, that, that's to Abraham and to his seed. It does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. What is Paul doing here? Paul seems to be making a very fine point that in the original language, just like it is in English today, the word seed is a collective plural. Now, we all know that. So when you say, I'm going to spread seed in my yard, no one thinks you're going to say, take a single grain of seed, you know, and walk out and carefully place it you know, in your yard, unless, of course, there's only one square inch of yard that is not already covered in rocks, you know, uh, you know stones, uh, artificial grass. Maybe in that case, you might go plant a single seed. But if you say, I'm going to spread seed in my yard, you know that it's going to be a big bag of seed, that you're going to spread it. And so that's true in Greek. It's true also in Hebrew that the word seed is singular, Paul is absolutely correct, but normally it's used in a collective plural way. So why is Paul making such an unusual comment? Well, first of all, in doing this, he's following a practice that was very common uh, among uh, pharisaical interpreters of Scripture. Uh, And that's, of course, how Paul was trained. So he's basically following his training. And he's saying, look, the word there is a singular word. And perhaps there's a reason for that. You see, Paul, like so many here sitting in this room, loves the Bible. And loves that it is inspired, every single word, for a reason. And he's saying, God, when he uh, inspired the writing of the Old Testament, he used this singular word, even though certainly it can be used as a collective plural, it is singular. And in this, Paul is pulling out a theological truth out of that reality that is helpful, not only for the people he's writing to in Galatia, but to us as well. In other words, Paul is saying that, yes, in one sense, when God says, I am making a pro- your progeny, however you want to interpret that word, yes, he had in mind the ones who would count more numerous than the stars in the heaven or the sands along the sea, yes. But he also had in mind a singular individual. Let's go back and think about the context. Again, we're still really pulling out that promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, when Abraham said, look, how do I know that all these promises will come true? If I were to die right now, some guy named Eleazar is going to inherit all I have because I have no child. And that's when God takes him out and says, look at the, look at the heavens. If you can count the stars, so will your offspring or your seed be. But yet, at that moment, Abraham really just needed one. He just needed one son. And he had zero. Yes, it was great to know that he would have a huge family, which was one of the promises of God in Genesis chapter 12, uh, verse 3. Yes, that was encouraging, but at the moment, he just needed an offspring singular. Just one. And if you look through Scripture, you will find that it is those singular seeds that seem to be in the focus of the story of the book of Genesis. 
It is about the promise made to Abraham and then was given to Isaac and then was given to Jacob, right? Singular seeds that went along. And the Bible makes a big deal about this. As a matter of fact, if you look at the story of David, God makes a promise to him that he would have a son that would sit on the throne and his kingdom would last forever. And of course, in its immediate context, people thought, okay, well, that's talking about Solomon. But people very quickly understood that it was referring to all of those sons that would sit on the throne, but ultimately about one son that would be a king whose kingdom really would last forever. Or if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, after humanity uh, rejected the, the covenant that God had made with them, that they could enjoy uh, perpetual and perfect uh, pleasure with God in the garden if they simply did not eat from the tree that was in the middle of the garden. But instead, they were tempted to eat of the, tr- the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden so that they could be like God, so they would not be dependent creatures, but they could be independent of him. After this, it happens. Disorder will come into the world. And in verse 15, he says this to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You can see even in that verse there that you have both the plural use of the word for seed, translated there offspring, and the singular. Yes, Satan and humanity would be at it tooth and nail throughout human history. (laughs) Amen to that, right? Do you feel that? Do you experience that? No, this does not mean that we will just hate snakes and want to destroy them, even though that is true for some of us. You know, just a side note. Do we have any like, oh, I see a snake, I love to pick it up kind of people here in the room? I'm just trying to keep my eye on those people. (laughs) So at least I've got one here. I appreciate that. There's one over there too. Okay, yeah, I appreciate that. We try to get to know each other better week in and week out. But for the most part, while we may not like snakes very much, and the hostility that is there, but notice it, it quickly takes this idea of offspring, which certainly is a collective plural, but it says, but... He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And theologians have called this the proto-evangelon, the first expression of the gospel. This is pointing to a single individual that will finally destroy the power of the evil one, the devil, and that is Jesus Christ. And so this idea of taking this uh, concept of offspring in plural, but understanding that in its truest sense, it was going to be fulfilled by one individual is actually very common in Scripture. And so when Paul makes this argument, when he says to your offspring, that is singular, and it's pointing to Christ, he's actually using a very common exegetical or means of interpreting Scripture rule. And what he's saying is that at the end of the day, while certainly the physical descendants of Abraham have enjoyed many of the blessings of the promises made to Abraham, that those promises 
point in their most complete and perfect fulfillment to one descendant of Abraham, to Jesus himself. Now, why is Paul making this point? He is making this point because he wants the people in Galatia to understand that if you want to enjoy all of the benefits of being in relationship with God, if you really want to be children of Abraham, then you need to identify that that is only possible through your relationship with Jesus Christ by faith. For it is in Christ, one of Paul's favorite and most important expressions, that we actually receive all of the promises of Abraham. Because Christ is the fulfillment of all those promises. So if I'm going to enjoy them, I need to be in Christ. Now, we have used illustrations like this, but it's important to to, to continue to stress. This is like when you have a buddy who has an all-access pass to something, right? You know, and I always love that. I I never tend to be the person with the all-access pass, you know, but I, I... because I'm a pastor, I do sort of hint very suggestively to people with all access passes to things that it would be a good idea to invite me to whatever event, you know, or concert or sporting, uh, you know, a thing that is going on. And, and it's a great deal. You know, that's kind of the way I roll. And whenever I'm with someone with an all access, access pass, let's say it's to a concert, I am going to take full advantage of it. <laughs> I'm going to meet the whole band. Uh, I might even uh, work with the roadies and I might see how the instruments feel and sound. I will basically take advantage of it until they ask me to leave. Why? Because I'm with the guy with the all-excess pass. Paul is saying, when we understand that when God made a promise to Abraham that it is ultimately and perfectly fulfilled in Christ, We understand that because we are united with Christ through faith, everything Jesus has access to, we have access to. Every promise, every blessing, every aspect of his relationship. Paul is trying to help us understand. He says it in a different way in Ephesians uh, chapter 1. I love it. Uh, The apostle Paul says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You see what he's saying? Because of our union with Christ, we have an all-excess pass to all the spiritual blessings. Isn't that amazing? That's what Paul is underscoring. If you want to be a child of Abraham, you are a child of Abraham in the fullest sense because of your relationship with with Christ, or if you prefer, in 2 Corinthians chapter 120, where Paul says, uh, in him are all the promises of God, yes and amen. In other words, if I want to enjoy blessing in this life, I will enjoy it through the promise God gave to Abraham, ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, I can talk about these concepts I can realize the, the beauty and the wonder of an all-access pass to all the spiritual blessing, but daily I tend to revert back to thinking that I will get access to those blessings through my efforts, through my work, through all of the things that I do. And what Paul is stressing is that's just not the way you'll get them. 
Yes, if I'm with the guy with the all-access pass to the concert, I can meet the band and play with the instruments and wander around and all of that. But if I don't even have a ticket, it doesn't matter how hard I try, I will not get behind that stage unless I break the law and will be hauled out by the local police. But yet we try to do that spiritually all the time. There is an all-excess pass that's given to us to enjoy the promises that God has given, and it's Jesus, but yet we try to circumvent it on a daily, if not hourly, basis. And Paul says, nope, this is how it works. Secondly, I want us to see uh, the primacy of the promise. Here Paul says something in the next verse, and by the way, we're not going to get to 19 and 20. I know there are at least two of you who are like, I cannot wait to hear Chris talk about, well, what's the point of the law? You need to come back next week. I thought I would start that today, and then as I uh, continued to study, I'm like, we're, there is no chance we're getting to that today. So I apologize. If all of you came because you wanted to know what is the purpose of the law, I'm sorry. Come back next week. We'll be, we'll be doing that next week, Lord willing. Notice what he says next, though, in verse 17. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying is the promise got here 430 years before the law. Now, while some of you may be thinking, well, isn't the law then the new and improved version of the relationship of God with Abraham? Uh, Paul says, no, you don't understand it. You don't understand it if you think that's true. Now, in our legal jurisprudence sort of world that we live in, there is a concept called precedent, right? Precedent means that there has been a legal ruling at some point in the past, and it establishes a pattern for the way legal decisions will be made in the future. Paul is saying something similar here. He is saying, look, if God acted, acted in a specific way, 430 years later, he's not going to reverse himself. He's not going to decide he made a mistake. He's not going to say, oops, you know, I was, uh, I, I don't know what I was thinking when I made that promise to Abraham. God is not like that. There is a characteristic of God that I think is very important for us to cling on to, and that is his immutability. Now, I know that's, that's a preacher word. Immutability just means it doesn't change. It doesn't change. God doesn't change. God doesn't say, wow, we'll work this way today, and then the next day say, no, we'll work the opposite way. Now, I know in, in Christianity over the last 150 years, and another, but, that, but that's simply wrong. It's not biblically supported. It's not true. God is immutable. He does not change. He doesn't decide, oh, well, that didn't work. Let's try this. That's not the way God works. God is sovereign. He knows everything. He can control everything. And he does not change. So the way he works is the way he works. And here Paul says that. He says, if God said, this is the way relationship with me is going to work, it's going to work on the basis of promise. And I made Abraham a promise, and that is the way it is. It's not going to change. God doesn't change his mind. Again, back to the first verse that we looked at. Even in our relationships, when we make 
legal promises to one another. We don't just say, ah, I've decided I'm not going to do that. That's not the way they work. And notice the language. Here it says, if God made a promise and ratified it, then the law coming later doesn't change a thing about it. Now, what is he talking about in this ratification of the promise that God made? For that, I think we do need to go back and look at Genesis 15 one more time. Come outside and said, look toward heaven, number the stars, if you're able to number them. Uh, Then he said, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to be righteousness. God made a promise. Abraham said, oh, I'm all over that promise. I, I accept that promise. I receive that promise by faith. And God said, then you and I are good. We are in a right relationship with one another. But the, the text keeps on going. And the, the Lord says to Abraham in verse 7, I, the Lord, who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abram said, O oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Isn't it interesting? I love the Bible. It's real. One second, God says, Abraham, look at the stars. That's, your offspring's going to be like that. And it says, Abraham, believe God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. Two verses later, Abraham says, but how am I going to know that's going to happen? It's like, didn't we just cover that? I mean, isn't that how I accepted you as righteous because you received that? In other words, Abraham's still struggling with the logistics of this. How is that going to work? And then in verse 9, God says to Abram, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And uh, Abraham knows what's about to happen. He lists all of these animals, and Abraham immediately gets those animals, and he uh, does a little butchery, and he cuts each of them in two. He cuts them in two, and he places them just so, opposing one another. And Abraham, in his mind, is thinking, I know this deal because this is the way covenants were made in Abraham's day. You took animals, you cut them in two, and then the parties of the covenant, you know, or the lesser party in the covenant would walk between those severed animals and, you know, effectively would declare that they would uphold their side of the covenant. And if they didn't, then they would be like those animals. Just, just real quick. That's not a good way to be, right? You know, if you just took these living animals and sawed them in two, you don't want to be like those animals. I know. I I think when we think about this scene, and because of the Bible just says it like it's a matter of fact, we think about it as very sanitary. But it ain't sanitary. You know, I mean, there is blood everywhere, right? Especially if we're talking a heifer. A heifer is a cow, right? Right? I think it is anyway, right? Don't ever call your girlfriend that, just side note. I'm trying to help. You know, all of these animals. I know you're thinking, I never thought about calling her that. But now it's in my mind, right? But it's a very bloody thing. And it's because it is an illustration of the seriousness of the covenant. When you're sitting there, the blood is flowing, so much so that it says Abram has to basically shoo away all of the carrion that wants to come and basically fear 
of what not holding up your end of the covenant looks like. But here's the amazing thing about this. In verse 17, it says, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river of the Euphrates, and etc. Here's a shocking thing about this scene. Abraham's thinking, well, God's going to come, and he's going to have me walk through the pieces to show that I'm going to do whatever God wants me to do, and therefore God will fulfill his promise to give me a great land, great people, uh, uh, to be a blessing to the nations, but that doesn't happen. Instead, God himself, in the form of this smoking Uh, pot and this flame goes through the pieces. God says, may I be like these animals if I don't fulfill this promise to you. This is what Paul inevitably has in mind when he says it doesn't matter how long in the future something else comes along. It doesn't negate a promise God made to the cost of his own existence. God said, if I don't fulfill this promise, may I be cut in two. He didn't ask Abraham to walk through it all. This is called a gracious covenant. It is a one-sided covenant. It is an agreement that God makes to Abraham, not based on Abraham's performance or his effort, but simply based on God's good will to Abraham. And so Paul says, look, If God ratified this promise that I will bring all these blessings to you, Abraham, by swearing a what's called a maledictory oath, a self-destructive oath to himself, do you think he changed his mind 430 years later? Do you? No. No, he doesn't. This is why Martin Luther, I'm paraphrasing him here, I thought about bringing another great Martin Luther quote because he says it so well, that when you start thinking that in fact God has changed his mind and now wants you to work on the basis of the law, on the basis of your performance, on the basis of how well you do things, how how well you think, how well you speak, you need to say to the law, law, you are here 430 years too late. Because God has already made a promise, and it will never change. You are tardy, O law. Get back to where you belong, because I will live according to the promise. You know what? I I love that. If only I could remember to do that, the 20 times a day I think that I am okay because of my performance. Or because of how hard I worked, or how well I did, or how well I said that, or how well I interacted. But instead, I fall back into thinking, well, God must have changed his mind. He only likes me when I perform according to the law. Paul says it doesn't matter how long after the promise is made that you think that the promise stands. And the promise is fulfilled not in your effort, not in my... my, uh, great strenuous labor that I give, but it's fulfilled in the seed, Jesus Christ, and in him I have the blessings of the promise. I know for some of you, you're sitting here and you're thinking, I swear he's preached this exact sermon 12 times in a row. The problem is the preacher hasn't started applying it yet, and I suspect some of us are struggling with it as well. 
And that's why Paul keeps hitting the same note over and over because he knows we are prone to think it's up to us. To think we can fulfill the standard if we just keep trying. Lastly, notice he says that uh, in order to get this inheritance, which is a new term that he's introducing in his argument, notice verse 18, for if the inheritance comes by law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Here Paul says, look, there's just two ways you're going to receive all of the inheritance that God has for you. And, uh, and trust me, it's massive. You know, there's only one way. It's not by you working hard. That's not the way you get it. Access to inheritance simply comes by believing and accepting the promise that God has made. Now, I don't know about you, but I want that inheritance. Now, it's interesting that it's called an inheritance uh, for most of us. But isn't that the truth of the story? Remember, I said that God swore this self-destructive oath this maledictory oath that I will always keep this covenant. And in the sea, Jesus Christ, that oath, interestingly, came to fruition. God himself was torn apart. The blood of the eternal was shed, not because he had violated his promise, but because all of those to whom the promise is given, fail at every turn. Because we break that commitment to be God's people, to follow him, to love him, as we confessed earlier in this service, with our whole heart, our whole mind, our whole strength, to love our neighbor as, as ourselves, because we perpetually fail the negative consequences of the covenant were actually brought to bear, not by us, upon whom it is deserved, but upon God himself in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, this is why the cross is so precious to us. Because there God bears the consequences of not, of not valuing God more highly than anything else of not following him in the way that he has shown us we've been designed to do. On the cross, God does shed his blood so that we can only receive blessing, inheritance. Yes, we get all that God has to offer, not because we worked for it, not according to the law, Paul says, but only because God has promised and God has done it. And that, is a great encouragement. Whenever we are sitting, and maybe I am the only person, you know, I've had one or two people say, maybe they're my brother or sister in this, but when I am struggling with how significant I am, with my value, with my purpose, and I start to think, well, I can only feel good about myself when I have ticked off all the boxes I thought I should tick off today. I want us to simply ask the question, am I going to inherit all God's blessings by fulfilling whatever law I have in my mind? Or am I going to get it simply because, because God promised it and that he is faithful to give it to me? And if it is only because he's promised it and is faithful to give it to me, then why am I not resting in him? Why am I determined to do it myself? 
And it gives me yet another opportunity to repent of my desire to be in control, of my desire to be independent, of my desire to show that, God, I don't really need your help. I can do it myself. And to recognize that I only have blessing or inheritance because God has given it graciously to me. May God give us grace to be good and frequent repenters. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for how kind you are. Lord, that you did not say, I'm going to hold out on you until you perform at a high enough level. Lord, if you had done that, none of us would ever be in a relationship. But you didn't wait until we could perform up to a standard, but you intervened through a promise. And you promised that you would be a God unto us and we would be your people solely out of your grace and out of the perfect fulfillment of the law by Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, we pray that we will be quick and quick and often repenters to recognize the many times and many ways that we try to build our own law and keep it when the promise is there to enjoy and receive because of Christ. May we increasingly be found in him, full of joy and freedom, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.